let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 1 and um, verse 11. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <coughs> well, last time we uh, continued the story of First and Second Samuel, briefly reviewing first the uh, ending chapters of First Samuel with David in the south fighting with the Amalekites and seeking to rescue his people. And then Saul, of course, in the north in Mount Gilboa, first seeking the necromancer and then uh, dying on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines and even his own sword. So as we began 2 Samuel then, we begin with another defense of David. And we've seen that especially since roughly chapters 18 and following in 1 Samuel. And here it is again. And so we began in verse 1 with David in Ziklag. And so he is nowhere near Saul when he died. And then in verses 2 to 10, we see this description of how David <clears throat> first learns of Saul's death and then how he ended up with Saul's crown and armband. So <clears throat> obviously, if David were to hold these things, people would wonder, where did you get them? And so the author's telling us uh, how. Now, as you may recall from last time, the, the question that faces us is, is this man uh, telling, this Amalekite, telling David the truth? Is this what happened? Or is only part of it true? Or whatever. And so <clears throat> with uh, some hesitation on my part, I think I would lean toward the position that this man was a looter who found Saul amid all the carnage, took his crown and armband, and then invented this story about being a soldier assisting Saul with his death and coming here to tell David what happened. And so therefore, 1 Samuel 31 would be the accurate story, and this man's story is not. It's contrived to win David's approval. <clears throat> now, once again, the, the author here is uh, including this detail even this, what seems to be, an untruth to dispel any fake news that David had anything to do with Saul's death. And so the broad principle then, actually you might say, comes from the author more so than the text itself. <laughs> and that is the author is defending the innocent. And we should do the same. And so whether we're talking about kings or presidents or key leaders, or we're talking about our friends or family members, or something that is happening at work, we should defend the innocent. 
Well, we turn now to David's response to the news that he received. And we already have seen David respond to some degree. He has asked some questions to learn about this very important information back in verses 3 to 5. But now here we have the central section of this broader section where David responds to the news by first mourning Saul's death. So in verse 11, then again, it reads, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. All right. Uh, This was just the custom back then. uh, When there was grief and mourning like this, they would tear their clothes. And we saw that earlier with the Amalekite coming in this condition. And so here now is David doing this. He is mourning. He is grieving. Today we might see people tear the clothes after they scored the winning touchdown or something like that. But back in in David's day, this is what was done. And so as he did this, uh, David then led all the people. And they uh, do the same, as it indicates. Now, once again, do you see what the author is communicating to us? This isn't just, oh, David grieved. (laughs) But notice, David grieved... And he did not rejoice. Do you see this additional defense of David? David did not rejoice over the death of the man who tried to kill him. He didn't sing and dance because uh, the man who made his life miserable, who chased him all over the place, who threw his spear at him, lied about him, took his wife away, and any number of other things. David didn't rejoice over the death of this man. Even for all of Saul's sins against David, David grieves his death. Now think about this. If David would have rejoiced, what message would that have sent to his men and to the rest of Israel? If David would have rejoiced that Saul, the anointed of God, was dead, he would probably encourage his people to hate fellow Israelites. It would have added to the divisions and probably would have made the transition to king on his part, ruling over the northern tribes and and especially Benjamin, very difficult, maybe even impossible. And so, as I've said uh, here again, refreshing our memory last week, so I say again, the author here is encouraging the people of Israel to receive David as their king. As I've indicated, I'm inclined to think that especially as we get up through maybe chapters 4 or 5, that these words were circulating when maybe David was still king in Hebron and not yet king in Jerusalem. And so these words are going around to uh, dispel the fake news about David, all the lies and slander and so forth that Saul spread about David. It was just fake news. It wasn't true. And so this is what we need to believe. This is how we should understand the person of David. Uh, Even just this weekend, uh, in regard to uh, Aaron Rodgers, who used to be the quarterback of the Packers and now the Jets, you know, they they were saying, you know, that he used to get all this bad press. And now he's getting good press. Now, this is obviously a totally different situation. But, you know, a certain message, a certain idea can circulate about a person or about a family or a church or whatever it is. And it may not be true at all. 
And so the author is trying to tell us, hey, this is who David is. He's a man who grieves at the death of the king. He wants everyone to know that David is a good man and he is a good king, one we should follow. And so not only did David refrain from killing Saul, as we saw in 1 Samuel, he mourns when he hears about Saul's death. And so I, I, I think the point's pretty straightforward for us too, right? We should have the same response. When our enemies or those who mistreat us, who slander us or criticize us or have made our lives difficult in one way or another, hey, we still need to show respect for them. We should still mourn when they sin, when they have hardships, when they die. I don't know about you, but in the last few years, I've noticed more and more, um, it tends to be the progressives who, when they hear of a conservative suffering in some way, they rejoice openly. You might remember a few years ago when Rand Paul was attacked and severely injured. People were excited about it. Hey, go neighbor. You know, you should have done this a long time ago or even worse. Or when conservatives are harassed at restaurants or even die from COVID. I've heard people rejoice over these things. That's not the way it should be for us. We should be different like David in this way. When unbelievers die, and I think we should understand Saul as an unbeliever, I do not expect to see him in heaven. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't expect that to be the case. There should be mourning on our part. Even when professing believers die, but we have not had a good relationship with them for one reason or another, we still should mourn. You know, sometimes when someone like this does pass away or has some kind of hardship and they have to move away or, you know, whatever it is, and it makes our lives easier, it's very tempting to be glad for that. And David's life is now a whole lot easier. He can come back to Israel. He is now going to be king and and so on and so forth. But that doesn't mean we rejoice over the hardships And in this case, the death of someone else. And so the author is defending David. But do you see how we can learn from David in this way, in this response? Well, let's continue then into verse 12. For it says, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. We see here clearly now that David's not merely mourning for Saul, but he is also mourning for all the rest. Notice it says they don't mourn briefly. It's not just a five-minute wail here. They're mourning the rest of the day. We don't know when this man came. Maybe he came at 11 in the morning, and whatever it was, probably for at least a few hours, they're mourning until sundown or something to that effect. Whatever they were doing in Ziklag to rebuild the city, they stopped. And then it says they fasted. So they didn't have dinner. Maybe they didn't have lunch. No food. Instead, they prayed. They mourned. They cried out to the Lord for these things. And so David mourns for Saul. But obviously he mourns too for Jonathan. 
Now we will see in the next section that David especially mourns for Jonathan. But he is mourning for Saul as well. And we'll see that uh, in, in his poem, this lament. But notice he mentions uh, two groups of people here. Uh, we have Saul, we have Jonathan. Then it says the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. Now, how should we understand those two? Are they uh, basically two um, ways of saying the same thing? Are we only talking about the soldiers who died here in two different ways? Possibly. I, I lean toward the thought that um, David and the men and, and all who are with them are mourning for Saul, they're mourning for Jonathan, they're mourning for the soldiers who died, but they're also mourning just simply for Israel. That they're mourning for those who lost loved ones, for those who've been driven out of their homes. Remember, the Philistines have taken over central Israel at this point. Okay, At least um, sizable par- parts of it. And so David is mourning for these things. Okay. <clears throat> now, obviously this is a big deal. You know, we, we can sit here and we're thousands of years later and and, and very much removed from it. We can just say, yeah, okay, you know, whatever. But um, I wasn't alive when JFK was assassinated, but I certainly was alive when 9-11 happened. And, you know, as we think of something momentous, that it just rocks the nation, as it were, um, we certainly can talk about COVID, but that's a bit different. But still, it was a kind of attack, and uh, the shutdown and everything else that has gone along with it. This is a big deal. It's unforgettable. You're not going to forget what happened. And, uh, you know, my dad talks about where he was when JFK was assassinated. And I remember I was in my office in, uh, in Dyersburg when 9-11 happened. And of course, at the time, we didn't have smartphones or anything. So I, we heard something about it. And I'm pretty sure it was Wally, the pastor, who came and said, hey, there's a airplane that hit the tower so went and found a tv on our you know they have them on the carts and we came it over and plugged it into the to the cable and so forth and started watching and saw the towers come down it's very memorable i'm sure we can remember um where we were there in mid-march especially when we were told that we were going to shut down the nation and so on it's that kind of thing here that has happened in israel the king is dead The king's son is dead. Many soldiers are dead. Israel has been upended in many ways. And so David's first response is mourning. And you can understand why. Now, if you picked up one of the handouts uh, in the back, uh, you can see there that I gave to you a... a, uh, diagram of these verses as, as I've said on other occasions some people find structure where there isn't structure uh, but in this case I do think that a chiasm is found here and remember chiasm think of an x right and so the the where the lines cross right in the middle that's the most important idea so the first and the last section you see the Amalekite coming and the Amalekite being executed and the the next section in the next to last section you see this conversation with David and the Amalekite but right in the middle verses 11 and 12 David's response this is what the author wants us to focus on 
We might want to focus on the execution, uh, but he wants us to focus on David's response, especially this response of mourning. And not only do we get this, but we're going to get verses 17 and following too. And so clearly this is the most important idea. The author wants everyone to know that David's first response when given the news was grief. Even though he lived in Philistia, even though he had some of the Philistine leaders on his side, David is an Israelite to the core. Okay? He is identifying with Israel. And it's possible that Philistines saw David's response. Okay? Again, he's in Ziklag, so it's possible, but he doesn't care. There was no Philistine collusion between David and the Philistines to wipe out Saul. And so again, here is the point. And this is the kind of leader we want. Unfortunately, we have a leader today who will sit on the beach and not go to Maui or to East Palestine to grieve with people there. Instead, he'll talk about fires in his kitchen and his Corvettes. Hey, David is the kind of leader that we want. All right, now, <clears throat> one last primary thought here of, in this central section. Notice how David, of course, is mourning for the people of God. And that should encourage us to do the same. David is mourning not just for Saul, not just for Jonathan, his friend, but, but for Israel as a whole. And I uh, thought of a few examples of, of where I have mourned, and maybe you have too, just in the last few years of the things that, that have been happening. Uh, in Canada, of course, I mentioned about the pr pastors being imprisoned because they kept worshiping even though the government said not to. I've mourned for those pastors, for those congregations, as they have been harassed and persecuted and similarly in Canada about the churches that have been burned and if you've been following that the, these different churches have been burned primarily because the um, the story is that the churches came in and they persecuted the indigenous peoples and they killed all these indigenous peoples and built their churches on top of a huge burial ground and so that's why all these uh, you know, Antifa groups and so on and so forth were burning down the churches. Well, if you've listened and heard in the last couple of weeks, at least for one of them, they dug it all up now that the church is gone and they didn't find any bones. Now, that leads us down another path. But do you see the point? Have you mourned for the believers in Canada? What about the churches that were fined in California? Or the, I've heard different numbers, and you probably have too, that roughly quarter of the people who did go to church before the shutdown who do not go to church after the shutdown. Are you mourning for this? Are you mourning for a culture that does not believe that the church is essential? Do you mourn for believers around the world? Or to think of it in a different way, do you mourn for the churches that have bought into the woke theology? Do you mourn when professing believers fall into sin 
when fewer and fewer people go to church, and so on and so forth. David certainly is grieving his friend. David is certainly grieving the loss of the king. But all of these events are affecting the people of God, the church of the Old Testament. And his first response upon hearing all of this is to grieve. And it is certainly a model for us. Now, as I've already uh, explained to you, the chiasm and such points to this. David's grief is the most important point. But we also see David's justice. And I'm not talking about the old baseball player. So, verse 13. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of a Malachite, excuse me, of an alien, an Amalekite. All right, so David heard this, right, back in verse 8, the man said about it, but he is confirming it. Yes, this man is an Amalekite. It's not like David didn't hear it before. He's confirming it. There is justice taking place here. And so, right, if if you want to have justice, you need to have all the facts straight and so forth. You know, what we've done at as a church court at different times, as if things have been told to us. But when we have the official meeting as a church body, as a church court, right, we, we often hear the same information again because now it's more formal. It's, it's, it's more um, official, if you will. And it seems like the same kind of thing is happening here. <clears throat> now, as this man answers this question, we know... <laughs> That in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, David just killed a whole bunch of Amalekites who had attacked Ziklag and the other places. This man may not have known that. We also remember back to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, where Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites and he didn't. And of course, we remember that the Amalekites had a death sentence against them because of their sin in Exodus 17. So let's turn there just uh, again here, uh, refresh our memory, Exodus 17. You recall this is when Israel had come out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're on their way to Mount Sinai. And uh, along the way, the Amalekites attack. You see it in chapter 17, verse 8. And remember, this is the story of um, Joshua fighting, Moses holding his staff up, right, his rod. His arms getting tired, and so Aaron and her hold them up and so on. Now note verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then in verse 16, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So if we're going to understand David's actions here in verses 13 and following, we need to understand it in this context. Hey, Eric's been talking about just war and all this in Sunday school. Well, this needs to be our background for understanding what's going on here. So verse 14 then says, So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This is David's biggest issue. Here is a man who thought it was okay to kill not just another man, Not just a king, 
but the one specifically anointed by Yahweh, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapters 8 and following. Okay, And so this was the reason why David would not kill Saul. He had more right than anyone else to kill Saul. He was the, the new anointed one. And he had, in many ways, every right to do so because of Saul's many, many sins. But he didn't because God had anointed Saul. And he was determined he would never be accused of killing the king so that he could be king. And so for all of his many sins, including Saul refusing to step down and handing the crown over to David, he still was Yahweh's anointed king. And so David would not kill the man Yahweh chose. Saul's armor bearer would not kill the man that Yahweh chose. But this Amalekite said that he did. And that is what David addresses. Okay? He confirms he's an Amalekite. He now says this here, this statement of accusation. Okay. Now, let me pause here just a moment. You remember back in 1 Samuel 22, and this is when David was uh, running from Saul. And remember, he came to uh, the tabernacle, and he got the, 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 table, the bread from the table of showbread and um, Goliath's sword and such. And, and remember, Doag the Edomite was there, and he went and told Saul. And Saul commanded for all the priests to be killed. But no Israelite would do it. Because the priests are anointed too. But a foreigner would do it. Doeg did it. And now here another foreigner is killing the anointed. You might say that this Amalekite sounds like the abortion doctor. Or that he uses the same arguments as uh, people use for euthanasia. You know, it's better to die than to suffer. It's better to get rid of the child than to endure health problems or if it was a situation of rape or incest. You know, people's quality of life is pretty low, so just end their suffering. It's the loving thing to do. Now, I'll mention Canada one more time. In 2022, they have euthanized um, 13,500 people. And that's legally sanctioned euthanasia. But this is the mindset of this Amalekite. He doesn't care about life. Okay, but, but he said, you know, it, it was for Saul's good. It, he asked for it and, and it put him out of his suffering. But he doesn't value life, just like the abortion doctor and so on and so forth. David does not think this way. Neither should we. God chose Saul. No one can kill Saul, but God is the way David thought of this. He didn't, and nobody else should either. Okay. Now, let me just pause and say this. I, I think it probably would have been a legitimate thing to take Saul to court and have Samuel preside or something like that to remove him from office. That, I think, would have been legitimate, but obviously that didn't happen. And David certainly wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. 
All right, well, let's continue then. Verse 15. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. We are not told who this was. We know a bunch of David's mighty men will have their names uh, listed later in, in the book. Uh, surely it was one of them. And so they execute, or he executes this Amalekite. And so verse 16, maybe right before the execution or as it's happening, David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, obviously this is somewhat striking. Um, Here David is killing a man. This is not in war. Um, He's not defending himself. But this is what we would say is capital punishment. David's verdict is given here in verse 16. And he, he doesn't just jump to a conclusion. He uses this man's own words against him. This is why we see the questions. In part, in verses 3 to 5, and when David initially is wanting to know, but especially here in these few verses, David is asking these questions so that this can be considered legitimate. Okay? Just. And simply says, we need no other witnesses. We need no other evidence. You condemn yourself. Okay? And... <clears throat> I mean, obviously, this is a principle that we have in the Sixth Commandment. We are not allowed to kill people. God has forbidden it. But he does and has given us some times where there are exceptions to that. The exception of self-defense. But even then, okay, we see that the person must go to the Levitical city, the city of refuge, and find refuge there if it was an accident and those kind of things too, Right? And so there's, there's a consequence, even in those settings. There is a place for capital punishment, and there is a place for just war. Here, we have the added idea that this is an Amalekite. So we have the Exodus 17 passage that lies behind what's happening. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so... Let's turn a moment, <clears throat> excuse me, to, <coughs> to Leviticus chapter 24. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> All right, so Leviticus 24, let's begin in verse 19. <coughs> It says, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And let me pause here. From everything we know, Israel did not keep this literally. Okay, And so if you were um, working with your neighbor and... You know, you're pulling a nail out and it flies out and it hits the, the, your, your neighbor in the eye or, you know, damages a tooth or something like that. You didn't literally go and knock somebody else's tooth out. But there needed to be some kind of restitution that corresponded to the damage. That's disfigurement, as the New King James says. Okay, that's the idea. So then verse 21, whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. 
So here's your capital punishment idea. And in verse 22, you shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So if this man, this Amalekite, was an illegal alien who had crossed the border illegally, or he had come to do business there, we don't know. Maybe he had the legitimate papers. But whatever the case, he was a foreigner, and the law applies to the foreigner just like it does the Israelite. So in this case, this man killed someone, and so the law is that person should be put to death. And so David then is fulfilling God's specific law in exterminating the Amalekites. That's unique. That doesn't apply beyond that scenario, right? But David is also fulfilling David's, or excuse me, God's civil law, right? And we see that here in Leviticus 24. Okay, so Exodus 17 and Leviticus 24 are being upheld here by David. David did what Saul failed to do with the Amalekite, and David did what God wanted him to do. And for both of these reasons. Okay. <clears throat> now, as you might expect, there are a lot of questions that come here, a lot of things that people address. Let me just uh, speak to a couple of them briefly. If this man had lied, and this whole thing was a story, it was it just on David's part to put him to death? Well, you see what David said, Right? Verse 16, your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you. So David took the man's word for what it was. Whether or not David doubted this word, in one sense, doesn't matter. Because he says, you said you did it, so I'm going to execute you for it. Okay? There is no indication here whatsoever that the man, you know, uh, at the last moment said, well, wait a second, I made up the story and Saul was already dead and I stole the stuff. There's no indication of that. There's no last second stay of ex execution because new information was found. So <clears throat> this has led some people to think that the man was telling the truth and that we somehow need to fit 1 Samuel 31 in this section together. And there's definitely challenges to do that. Um <clears throat> I don't know. Let's turn to chapter 4 and verse 10. Because David makes reference to this. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 4, verse 10. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. That suggests to us that David thought this man was not completely innocent in the things that he said. Not just killing Saul, but even the way he described it. But again, there's debate going back and forth here. Um, <clears throat> so that's one of the things that is raised. The other thing that is raised is this. Some people have said, well, David just killed this Amalekite because he was still upset because of what happened just a few days before. In chapter 30, remember the Amalekites came to Ziklag, took his family and all the families of his soldiers and, and right, all this. David rescued them all, but were some of the women harassed? I mean, we're not told. 
And so some people go down this path and say, well, David is just being vindictive. But as I've tried to show you, I think we cannot say that in light of Exodus 17, in light of uh, Leviticus chapter 24. Okay? <clears throat> and so David, as Yahweh's anointed, is fulfilling Yahweh's command to kill the Amalekite. And now as the civil leader of the nation to put to death the evildoer in this way. And so um, I think that's how we should understand some of these questions that people raise. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and so as I bring things to a close <coughs> then here tonight, let me leave you with these few thoughts. Um, first of all, do you see how David is willing to keep God's word? And how many times did we see that Saul was not? Saul would do whatever he wanted. But David here is following the law, the law in Exodus and the law in Leviticus that we've looked at. Okay. <clears throat> also, um, David here has been learning to abide by God's providence. And certainly in his particular situation, he was not going to put Saul to death. Okay. He was not going to take matters into his own hands. And now it happened. Okay. God, in his providence, had this arrow come from the Philistine and strike Saul and so on and so forth. David had nothing to do with it. And so David's trust in Yahweh all the way along is now coming to fruition. And so certainly this should be our general pattern. Maybe we can talk about exceptions, but certainly this is the general pattern. This is what David did. And again, primarily, so no one could accuse him of killing off his enemy in order to ascend to the throne. That's what the world does. Okay? People may kill others now through cancel culture or litigation. They may not actually pull the trigger. But this transition from one leader to the next, we, we've seen many, many throughout the centuries have killed someone so they could ascend to the throne. David would not do that. Very intentional. This is the kind of man we want. And in the end, <clears throat> it is clear that David had nothing to do with Saul's death. He's miles away. He mourns his death. He executes Saul's killer. And so don't believe the lies about David that you've heard. Accept him as your king. And so the same, then, is how we should follow and, and apply this today. When you hear something about someone else, don't just believe it. Whether it's about Trump or Biden, or your friend at school who is gossiping about somebody else. You can't believe everything that you hear. You remember the proverb that says, this is Proverbs 18 and verse 17, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And so, if you will, the author here is being that neighbor and is examining all this propaganda against David. And he says, no, this is what's true. So, <clears throat> there are, again, a variety of things for us to learn here uh, from this passage and how we should relate to others too, whether in the line to be the next king or not. 
And uh, so a few thoughts here tonight on this. And so next time we'll begin looking at David's lament and verses 17 and following. So let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father and God, (coughs) we thank you again for your word and we thank you for the the truths that you contain uh, within it. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that... um, you are uh, one that we can trust, one we can lean upon, um, as David did. Imperfectly, yes, but as he did for so many years while he was waiting for you to remove Saul as king. But we also um, uh, thank you that um, you have given us your law to follow. And we should not abdicate our responsibility and just say, well, I'm going to let go and let God But when you've given us your law, we should abide by it. And David did so here. He abided by the law to execute this evildoer and uh, help us then to do the same in whatever form and capacity we may find ourselves in in this way. Um, But also we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to abide by your law to love our neighbor as ourselves, to grieve with those who grieve, to mourn with those who mourn. For there truly is blessing when we do for ourselves and others. And so, Lord, we we pray that uh, you would help us to learn from these things, that we would not just fill our minds, but to fill our lives with righteousness and truth. And so we pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.